Charles Spurgeon said, You cannot straighten them, but you can shine. They would destroy you if they could, but all you have to do is shine. If Christian men would give more attention to their shining and pay less attention to the crooked and perverse generation, much more would come of it. But now we are advised to keep abreast of the times and to catch the spirit of the age. If I could ever catch that spirit, I would hurl it into the bottomless abyss. For it is a spirit that is antagonistic to Christ in all respects. But we are just to keep clear of all of that and shine as lights in the world. Shining as lights in the world is to be the desire of every living, breathing Christian. That is our call, to shine as lights. Jesus said of Himself that He was the light of the world. In John chapter 8, verse 12, He said, who, He who follows Me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. When Christ our Lord, when He said this, He was saying that He is our salvation. When He said that He was the light, He's saying that in Him we find life. That He is the one that brings us out of darkness, out of our sin. He frees us from the wage of sin, death. He's saying that He is the Savior of the world. When Christ proclaimed to be the light of the world, He was saying that He was the one that the Old Testament had prophesied of. The the Savior that would come into the world. As our Lord, He being the light, being our salvation, His people, those who have trusted in His name, have been united with Him. And we know from His very own words, we are now called to be the light of the world. So think about it. If Christ is the light of the world, how are we to be the light of the world? We are to reflect Him in the world. We are to reflect the image of Christ. We are to be Christ-like in this life. We are not to walk in darkness, not to walk as the world walks, but in the light. Jesus said that we are to let our righteousness show forth. Christ told us in Matthew 5.16, He said, Let your light shine before men, that they may, they may see your good works. He didn't tell us to do it for ourselves, that we might receive accolades and praise from men. What did He say there in Matthew 5.16? He said, so that you may glorify your Father in heaven. He didn't tell our faith to be hidden and out of view, but what's He saying? It's to be bright and shining in the public square. In the public square in the public arena of life. It's to be seen by the culture in all areas of life for Him and His glory. In this book of Philippians, we've really been seeing the call to be the light of the world. Paul's been talking about the righteousness that we should have in Christ throughout this book. And In chapter 1, in verse 11, he said, being filled with the fruits of righteousness. Shining your light to the world. He says there, which are by Jesus Christ, and there he says it again, to the glory and to the praise of God. In verse 27, Paul called believers to let their conduct be worthy of the Gospel. 
the gospel of Christ. He went on to say that he may hear of their affairs, that they would be standing fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He was calling them to be the light of the world. In verse 29, maybe the the greatest way that we can display Christ in the world, that we can display the the glory of Christ and, and our hearts for Christ and reflecting Christ in the world, maybe the best way that we could be light to the world is shown to us in verse 29 in chapter 1. It said there, for you, it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only that you would believe in Him, but that you would suffer for His sake. Maybe the greatest light that we can shine in this world is to be persecuted or to suffer for Christ's sake. In chapter 2, we continually hear the call that the church is to be peculiar, is to be different in the world, to be the light of the world. In verse 2, he told us that that we are to be a like-minded people, that we are to have the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, that we were to have nothing to be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but instead with lowliness of mind, humility in our lives. That each of us was to esteem others better than himself. In verse 4, he said, Look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. And then in verse 5, he tells us to have the mind of Christ. That Christ had this mentality, and we also are to have it. In other words, a part of reflecting Christ in this world is to have the unity of Christ. The unity that Christ desires for us to put away our disputes and our own pride, to have the mind of Christ, which we know from Paul was the humility of Christ. And he goes on to show us what that humility looks like with telling us the gospel of Jesus Christ from the incarnation to the resurrection to the glorification of Jesus Christ. And that Christians are now to emulate the the greatest humility ever seen on the face of the planet. Jesus Christ. In verse 12, Paul is calling believers to work out their own sanctification with fear and much trembling, to work out what God has worked in. In other words, to be conformed to the image of Christ, to the image of God, to be the light of the world. This is the call from the book of Philippians. And as we talked about last week, as we see these attributes grow in our lives, as we see the conformity of Christ in our life, as we see ourselves growing from one degree of glory to the next, we must always realize the truth of verse 13, which it is God who works in us, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Paul has called the believers there to work out their own sanctification, and now he follows that up with this verse that we come to this morning. Work out your own sanctification, and the very next command is this. Do all things without complaining and disputing. In other words, what we are going to talk about this morning is that, a working out 
of your sanctification, the fruit of believers' lives, that this should be true of us. This should be our heart's desire. Verse 14 should be something that we are growing in as professing believers that desire to be the light of the world. This is something we all should be working towards, resolving to do in our lives. And on top of that, in hearing this sermon, I can almost certainly say that every one of us will need repentance in our life. None of us in hearing this sermon will be free of guilt, including me. And hear me this morning, I'm not making any excuses to sin. Every single one of us should desire to do nothing that our precious Lord and Savior died for. But as we hear this sermon, make sure you know this truth. And thanks be to God, there is no, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That being said, as you shine His lights in this world, verse 14 and 15 should be a growing truth in your life. In verse 14, Paul says, He gives us this command to do all things without grumbling and disputing. Notice he says, all things. This is the whole of your life, everything in your life, every encounter that you would have, every situation that you would find yourself in, every person that you meet, and even God Himself. In all things of life, Paul says, do without grumbling and disputing. You could translate it murmurings, complaining, Disputing, that word is really talking about an inward questioning, an inward struggle inside the heart. That This complaining, this murmuring, it comes from the inside out. The words are tied together. In verse 15, Paul says that he speaks there of a, of a perverse and a crooked generation. There he gives us a clue of what type of grumbling What type of complaining he's talking about there? He gives us a clue of where our minds should be going as we hear that perverse and crooked generation. I believe he's quoting a direct quote from the Old Testament and speaking directly of the people of Israel and specifically those who were in the desert who complained and grumbled against God. Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, speaking of the people of Israel, says that they corrupted themselves. And it says there that they are not His children because of their blemish. And He tells us what their blemish was. That they were a perverse and crooked generation. Paul here is pleading with the church at Philippi that they would not be like the Israelites that grumbled against God in the desert. That's what he's saying. That they would be unlike these perverse ones. And it says clearly there in Deuteronomy 32 that those who grumbled against God, who did not reach the promised land, who died there and faced the judgment of God, that they were not the children of God. So let's think about this for a moment. What type of grumbling is this that Paul is talking about? Well, if he's trying to get our minds to think of Israel coming out of Egypt and wandering in the desert, what is he trying to get us to think about? 
Well, I believe in this context, he's, he's talking about people complaining about God. People complaining to God. People ungrateful for what God has given them in life. Let's consider those Israelites that God let out of Egypt. Paul tells us of them in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, most likely speaking of Korah's rebellion there where, where there was grumbling against Moses and Aaron. There, Paul says, that church in Corinth, he says, don't grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example. And they were written down for our instruction to continually talk about these people that grumbled against God in the desert. This was a reflection of their hearts. That they were faithless. That they were far from God. They were unhappy with what God had given them in life. They were unwilling to trust God. They were unwilling to hear His Word and receive it. They rejected God's prophet, Moses, and what He asked them to do. God had graciously freed them from slavery, freed them from the oppression of the Egyptians. He gave them every single reason to believe. Every single reason to trust in Him. He provided for them richly throughout, and yet they grumbled against Him. And because of this, this faithless generation, it was lost in the desert. Scripture tells us that all but two, Joshua and Caleb, enter in to the promised land. This generation, they complained towards God. Just a few instances of their complaints. They, they at one point said that they were going to die at the hand of Pharaoh. They saw all those signs and wonders and then questioned if God could save them from the hand of Pharaoh. At another point in time, they complain that they have no water. They had just seen God split the Red Sea. And yet they complain about having no water. No food at another point. Another point, they grumble about the type of food that God gives them. At another point, they, they grumble against Moses and Aaron. Why would you give us these leaders? They complained that they would die in the desert and that it would have been better if they would have stayed in Egypt. They're like, give us back our slavery. You know what came of their grumblings against God? Judgment from God. If you study the Scriptures, you will see clearly how God feels about murmurings against Him. These people had no faith in the promises of God. They had no faith in God's provision. They had no trust that God would see them through what He promised. They believed in their hearts that God was leaving them and forsaking them even though He had promised the opposite. These people spoke out of the abundance of their heart. While they might have said, we are the people of God. And they might even believe that they were the people of God. Their hearts revealed that they had little to no faith at all. 
And because of their lack of faith, they received the judgment of God. Just one example of God's judgment on the the people of Israel as they spoke against God is in Numbers 21, verse 5. It says there, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. They actually had food. They just loathed the food that God gave them. In verse 6 it said, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people. And so many of the people died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord would take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. This is an instance. We see the sin against God. We see the grumbling against God. We see the judgment of God come upon the people. We see the consequences of their sin. We see the grace of God, the mercy of God, giving this this sign, this, this fiery serpent that He lifts up on a bronze pole, a way that they, their curse could be reversed. And we actually see that this was a symbol, a type, a shadow of Christ who was to come. And Christ said of Himself that he was, he was what this was pointing to and that He Himself would be lifted up and that He would take the curse from the people for their sins against God. God was so gracious to these people of His Yet they constantly showed the rebellion of their hearts. They, they showed their pride. They, they showed their desire to have things their way. I don't want this worthless food, God. I want to go back to Egypt. I want to go back to my slavery. And ultimately, God judged them for it. So as we consider this command here from Philippians chapter 2.14 I want you this morning to think of the rich mercy of God. The, the rich grace of God in your life. I want you to think of that amazing grace of God in your life this morning. It should be a humbling fact. God has given us life in His name. Like the Israelites, He's freed us from the slavery to sin. He's freed us from the wages of death. He's he's led us out into the desert. That's where we're at right now. This this life that we live out, this perseverance in the faith, this this working out our sanctification, that's that's the desert. That's the struggle. That's our battle with indwelling sin. That's where we're at. As believers, we haven't reached the promised land yet. Like the Israelites, God has promised not to leave us nor forsake us. And while in this life we will have tribulations, we will have trials, we have that promise from Christ Himself. And we learn from chapter 1, we certainly will suffer for the name of Christ in this life. But we also know that He's guiding us like the pillar of light. He is nourishing our souls as the bread from heaven. 
He's providing for us the living water to which we will never thirst again. And not only that, He has promised us the promised land. He has promised us a great inheritance. A new heavens, a new earth with Him. Future resurrected, glorified bodies perfected in Christ for all of eternity. He's done all this for His children. Just thinking of it, we should be humbled by the weight of it. How is this possible that you would do this for a wretch like me? Now considering the amazing grace of God that we profess to have found, go ahead and grumble and complain against Him. In thinking about this, it is no wonder why God hates complaining against Him. It is no wonder that He judged the Israelites in the desert. Here in verse 14, the the word disputing, it, it really means with God in your heart. It's an argument with God in your heart. It's a why God mentality in your heart. Why did I have to go through this? Why did I have to do this? Why did you give me this circumstance, God? It's a questioning God and His goodness. It's a questioning His plan and His purposes in this life. As we hear it, please forgive us, God. Let us repent and look to Christ who is lifted up like that bronze serpent as the curse for our cursing against God. Charles Spurgeon, commenting on this verse, he gives three examples of things we must never murmur against. One, he said the providence of God. Two, he said one another. And third, he said the ungodly world. The providence of God, perhaps the most important of the three, and all the others would fall in line with that. The providence of God. And I want you to understand that this morning. Providence of God teaches us that he, God, He governs the universe. He has ordered time and history. Nothing exists without Him. He has permitted every single situation that will take place in all of history. He has decreed the beginning to the end. He is working all things according to the counsel of His will and for the good of His saints. This we know from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 and Romans 8, 28. Nothing in God's universe happens by accident. Please hear me say that this morning. Nothing in this universe or time in history, what's going to happen to you today, what's going to happen to you this year, happens outside of God's governance and His sovereignty. It's all in His providence. He brought it about. So when we grumble, Think about it. Who are we truly grumbling against? God. Sure, it might be because you found yourself in a long line. Sure, it might be because something's not working exactly 
as you demand it to. Maybe it's because they didn't get your order just right at the restaurant. Or someone didn't do something exactly as you said it. Or maybe it was that moment you got stuck in traffic or when you had to do the dishes or clean up after someone else. Or that, that moment your cell phone decided to freeze up and stop working. Or the internet stops. Or your cable goes out. I want you to think of our hearts. We live in a culture of complainers. And right now, Christians are frankly not that much different. When situations happen like this all around us, who is really to blame? Who are you ultimately upset with? Who are you truly dissatisfied with? Is it not God? Don't hear me wrong, I'm not a feudalist. I do believe that sometimes we can change situations in our life. And we should be working to right wrongs in our life. But that being said, when you find yourself in a situation that you did not plan for, who put you there? Was it not the all-powerful King of the universe? Was it not the sovereign God who works all things according to the counsel of His own will? Ask yourself this morning, could God have given you a different situation if He wanted to? The answer is obvious. Yes. He could have, but he didn't. So where you find yourself in this life, it must have been his will. And it must be for your good if you're his. So when we grumble, finding ourselves in situations we do not plan, we must know that it is God who we are truly complaining about. In other words, we should really say it like this. God, why did you give me this spouse? Why did you put me in this situation? Why can't I have it my way? Why did it have to be this way? Why did you bring this person into my life? Why, God? Why do I have to deal with this coworker? Why does this church have to be this way? Why can't everyone just think like me? I want you to think about it this morning. When we complain in this life, I want you to think about the sin that is behind it. What is it? It's ultimately we think we know better than God. You hear those two huge overarching points this morning. Everything is working according to the counsel of His will. Everything. And if you are His, all things in your life are for your good, to the conformity of Christ in your life, to grow you in sanctification in your life, to change you from one degree of glory to the next in your life. And ultimately, when you face that situation, what you're truly saying is, God, I know better. It's our pride. That is our sin problem. God, I want it my way. When we grumble in this life, we really might as well say things like, 
Yes, God, you're working all things according to the counsel of your will. Yes, all things work together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purposes. But not this thing. Not this situation I'm going through. Sure, God, I believe your word. I believe your promises. I believe your provision. But not right now. Paul says, do all things in life without grumbling or disputing with God. All things. Let's remember the context. This church was having struggles with dissension, with arguing, with bickering, with division. They were complaining about one another, complaining about the leadership of the church. They're basically saying to God, why did you give me these people to serve with? Why do I have to worship with these people that I do not agree with? And they do not agree with me. Why'd you give me these elders, these pastors? They're ultimately grumbling against God. Paul says of the believer, we should be progressing away from this. We should be showing the world that we are the light of the world. We should be progressing away from this. We should be repenting of this. We should be desiring obedience in this area in our lives, truly. We should be growing in this. So what's the heart behind the grumbling and the complaining? It's discontentment. And what's the opposite? What should we be growing into? It's contentment. I'm not saying you have to be content with horrible situations in your life, but you need to be content in those situations. You can desire to have those situations change, but you need to understand God has you here for a reason. And be content. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. It's the opposite of grumbling and complaining. This morning as we talk about this, I want us to remember something. We are sinners who only deserve hell. The fact that God has given us grace is astonishing. It's undeserved favor from God. Not only did He give us grace to save us from an eternal hell, from an eternal hell, He's given us a whole bunch of other things in life. It should be astonishing to us. God, your grace found in Christ and then all this? That should be our attitude. We, as believers, have no right to complain about anything in life. Nothing. Hell is the wage of your sin. What do you have to complain about? That is what we all deserved. But in Christ, we didn't get that. In Christ, that's not our future. In Christ, we have a heavenly home. What on earth are we complaining about? Are you sick? It's far better than hell. You don't make very much money? Far better than hell. You don't like your job? You feel like you're a slave to your employer? It's far better than hell. 
your spouse is hard-hearted and hard to deal with, it's far better than hell. I want you to think of Job. He lost everything. He found more pain in his life than you and I could ever know. His wife, her response was, Job, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Curse Him. Grumble against Him. Question His goodness. Question His grace. Question His character. Call God into question because of what He has given you in this life. Job's response. You speak as a foolish woman. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. We complain when we receive adversity in this life. And how do sinners that have been saved from a sinner's hell have the audacity to expect only good situations in this life? When Scripture clearly tells us that we'll have trials, we'll have tribulation, and we'll suffer for Christ's sake. We need to have the expectation of Job. Accept the good. Be grateful for the good and accept the adversity and be grateful for it because you know God is working all things according to the counsel of His will and for your good in this life. Charles Spurgeon said, Do not dispute with God. Let Him do what seemeth good. Dispute not with your fellow Christians. Raise not railing accusations against them. When Calvin was told that Luther, Luther had spoken ill of him, he said, let Luther call me a devil if he please. I will never say it of him. But I will say that he is the most dear and valiant servant of the Lord. May the Lord grant us the same spirit here this morning. Paul tells us why this should be our hearts. Trust God, trust in His provision, trust in His providence. He tells us that in verse 15. Why we are doing this. So that we may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The idea of this verse is that we're proving something. We're becoming something. That this is a work that's supposed to have started in your life. That you're to be showing your heart for God and a trust in His provision and His kindness towards you. In the verse, it's telling us that we're not doing this in perfection, but the direction of our life is to have a less and less grumbling and complaining in our life and a more and more trusting and thankfulness in our life. We are proving this. We are becoming this. What? Blameless and harmless. In other words, we're living in such a way that people can bring nothing credible against us. Well, they'll bring stuff against us, believe me. But nothing credible. Without fault, without reason for rebuke. Without blemish. I think it's interesting Paul says that. Without blemish. And 
Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, we know that their blemish, the people that fell in the desert, their blemish was the, their complaining, their grumbling against God. And he's calling us to be without blemish. Without dissatisfaction with God and the circumstances he gave you. Without grumbling in this life. And I want you to think about it this morning. Could there any, could, is there anything that could destroy your Christian witness faster than grumbling and complaining in this life? I have heard it said, if you're going to be, if you're going to complain to someone, don't tell them you're a Christian. We make our faith cheap. How are we to shine as lights as we are grumbling in a crooked, in a perverse generation, in a sinful world? If we are complaining against the God that saved us, how cheap does our faith become in this world? Think about it. Have you heard about this God I love? About this One who saved me by His amazing grace, who sent His one and only Son, God in the flesh, the One who died in my place, who saved me from an eternity in hell. He took the wrath that I deserve. He is so awesome until He makes me do something I don't want to do. Until He makes me wait in traffic. He's an amazing God. He's done so much for me. But I get upset with Him when He makes me go through situations in life that I don't like. I get upset with Him when life gets hard. Wait a minute. Is He amazing? Or do you despise this God in your heart? Now verse 15 speaks of the fact that Christians shine as lights. Notice the language of this verse. It's not telling us to shine as lights. It's saying Christians shine as lights. This is to be the reality of our life. If you are in Christ, how can you help but shine as a light in a crooked and perverse generation? We are to reflect the person of Jesus Christ in this evil world. Jesus called us a beacon, a city set on a hill for Him and His glory. We're not to be like the world, constantly grumbling and complaining as if we expect no adversity in this life. Jesus Himself suffered the worst circumstances in all of history, and yet He opened not His mouth. He was like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. He laid down His life for sinners. He suffered the wrath of God on our behalf to which He sweat blood knowing what He would face. And yet, He grumbled not. May we have the same mind of Christ. Knowing that whatever we go through in this life, God is worthy of our praise. God is worthy of our praise. God is good, and His goodness will never stop. 
whether you can think about it in the moment, doesn't stop God from being good. It doesn't stop God's plan from moving forward. It does not stop God's will. God is worthy of our worship, not grumblings. We must remember that God is for us. That in this life, we absolutely have no reason to grumble against Him. If we know His Word, if we are trusting His promises, if we know that He holds our future, if we know that He's working all things in our lives for our good, we absolutely have no reason to question Him, to dispute with Him, to grumble against Him. Today as we finish up this message, if you have heard this message and are not convicted by it, there's a problem. You might be dead inside. As Christians, we should hear this message and it should be incredibly convicting to us. It should make us want to run towards God in repentance. It should make us want to fall down and beg Him to forgive us for this attitude that we've had as Americans rather than His children that shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. In hearing this, it should cultivate in us the exact opposite, which we know is the very will of God in our lives. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, in everything, give thanks. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Today, this message should show us once again how far we fall. That we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And how each and every one of us desperately need Christ all the more. He is our only hope in life and death. If you do not know Him this morning, please turn to Him now. Turn to Him where you sit. Trust in His perfect work and not yourself. Trust in the blessed Savior. He will save you. Repent of your complaining and grumbling against God. Rely on Christ and His perfect work to save you.